One of the things I love about like information security in general is that you can't solve it. This isn't something like like polio where you you know you invent a vaccine and you eradicate essentially the disease. This is more like an arms race, you know, where there's uh, attackers and defenders and the attackers develop something new and the defenders have to scramble to catch up and patch the holes. Or the defenders make some advances and the attackers are always looking, oh, you know, how can I get around that? So it, it, it never ends. There's It's a nice stable career. I mean, you're always going to be needed, which is it's sort of sad. And one sense but uh, you know in terms of finding a good career to be in that you know, it's really good for that you're listening to what the tech a podcast powered by the computer science department of u calgary here to deconstruct complex computer science concepts bit by bit and explain what the tech is going on my name is paolo my name is lynn today we talk to michael jacobson a professor and the new director of the Masters of Information Security and Privacy program here at UCalgary. Today, we find what the tech is up with cryptography and computational number theory. We also decode the new graduate program for anyone interested in going into information security. Without further ado, please welcome our guest, Michael Jacobson. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Likewise, likewise. So why don't you just go ahead and tell us who you are, what you're currently doing, and just give us like a quick overview of your current position um, at the university and as well as like any other kind of side projects that you're working on. Sure. Uh, So my name is Michael Jacobson. I'm a professor in the Department of Computer Science here. Um, I'm the new director of the Masters of Information Security and Privacy Professional Graduate Program. Uh, within that program, I teach the applied cryptography course, so one of the sort of fundamental background uh, topics. My the rest of my career in life, uh, the research I do is uh, I do actually computational number theory, which is a pretty important uh, supporting technology for a lot of the uh, cryptographic protocols that uh, people use today. That's cool. awesome. That's- Yeah, that we got lots of stuff to unpack there for sure. (laughs) Just before we get into all of that, why don't we kind of dive a little deeper into kind of where you sort of started? Um, Where did you do your uh, your undergrad? I did my undergrad at the University of Manitoba. Oh, nice! And was that in computer science? It was, yeah. Nice. Did you sort of know at the time that you applied uh, to the University of Manitoba that you wanted? to go into computer science or like when was the kind of the first time you knew like hey computer science sounds like a fun journey <laughs> yeah so uh, i was sort of fortunate uh, in high school so i i grew up and uh, went to high school in a small rural community in manitoba actually called bozager a little shout out to them and, uh, <laughs> right. but uh, we had a you know one of our uh, the math teachers there was uh, you know looking ahead a bit and interested in computers so so i was even there i was able to um learn about how to program, you know, from the ninth grade on. And I was taking computer science every year. Um, as to whether I knew I wanted to do that, it was, I, I was, so I, I liked that a lot. I, my dad had bought a Coleco Adam computer too, back in the mid eighties. You know, it was kind of a Coleco vision that you could also program a little bit. So I was doing basic on there and goofing around and stuff. Yeah. So I knew I liked that. I was good at math. And I also really liked English a lot. So like, there was okay. lots of different things I wanted to do. But uh, University of Manitoba uh, still does. And at the time, they had a co-op program in the, for computer science undergrads. Okay. And that kind of swung it because I figured, hey, you know, I'll get by uh, the ideas there that you get. You do um, 
three uh, summer work terms of four months of pop. So by the time you graduate, you've got a year of work experience and almost everybody just goes on and works with the company that they had been in. So, so it was the way to kind of break the tie for me. And, you know, it ended up going a lot beyond there, of course, but uh, that's uh, it's sort of how it came about. That's awesome. We love that's hearing awesome. about those stories. Okay. So awesome. So you're at the university of Manitoba. Now you're in computer science. Um, did you have an idea of sort of where you wanted to take your life kind of beyond the undergrad? Uh, oddly enough, no. <laughs> so I was saying when I started, you know, I was just had this vague idea that I do co-op and, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe work with the city of Winnipeg or, you know, one of the companies in Winnipeg that hires people and so on. But, uh, but what ended up happening was that, uh, you know, even back in the day, so this is the early 90s, there was this uh, MSERC uh, USRA program, which is undergraduate student research something. But it's a, <laughs> it's a program that uh, funds uh, summer undergraduate research programs, so full-time sort of uh, summer research jobs. And right. so I saw that during my second year. And I indicated, oh, that sounds like fun. Why don't I give that a shot? It could be interesting. And so I put in sort of a general, the way they did it in Manitoba was you would just sort of declare your interest in that as a student, say roughly what you were interested in. And I put down, um, you know, uh, I didn't say it this way, like computational mathematics. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this attracted the attention of uh, one of my professors who was teaching me like, uh, you know, basically numeric numerical stuff, numerical computing, algebra. And I remember this is a big class with, you know, like 150 people. And one day at the end of the lecture, the professor says, Michael Jacobson, would you please come down and see me? And I was all embarrassed as I, I thought he caught me like, cause it's, it was right after lunch. I'd always be dozing in the middle. I thought he caught me and was going to you know, read me out, but it turned out he saw my interest in this and this is what he did for a living. So in the end, I got the award. I did a summer undergraduate research project with his name is Hugh Williams and loved it. And so uh, that was my first work term. My second two work terms, I also did research with him. So I ended up not working for any companies. My co-op still got the co-op degree. I still didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. At some point, he said to me, so, you know, you've done all this research. You've basically got enough material to write a master's thesis. Do you want to go to grad school? I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. We'll sort of try that. So I did that. And then at the end of my master's, he said again, well, what are you going to do? I don't know. He said, well, you know, you've got like a lot, you've identified a bunch of open questions. Why don't you go on and do a PhD? And I said, okay, we'll try that. And it's just, you know, I've been really fortunate in my life. I mean, opportunities have just sort of come at the right time. And, you know, I kind of, there was never much of a struggle to find things, you know, things presented themselves that were really good and interesting and fun. And I just followed them and it's worked out well. Yeah. And this was all at the University of Manitoba. Yeah. The, uh, the PhD wasn't in the end. He, my, Hugh Williams did send me away. So he okay. was of the, of the opinion that you shouldn't do all your degrees at the same institution if possible. It's good to get away and see how the rest of the world works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he sent me to uh, study my, for my doctorate with uh, one of his uh, collaborators in Germany. So I went over there for three and a half years and did my degree there. Whoa, wow. that's crazy. How did you find that experience? Like you're working on a very similar project within the whole computational theory area and in a totally different part of the world. Yeah. How did you find that experience? It was awesome. Uh, 
highly recommend it to everybody who, who talks to me about it. I know, for example, I'm teaching undergrad courses, the international student people and always want to come and talk about exchange programs in my class. And but yeah, come and I was as soon as they're gone, I tell the students, yeah, do this, you know, do this. It's awesome. You know, <laughs> never, they're so rare to get opportunities like that and just to go, you know, immerse yourself in a different culture and country. And it's just, yeah, just fantastic experience. That's awesome. That's so cool. That is so cool. And honestly, like is, is a huge motivator. You know, when I was, when I first started at the university of Calgary, you know, the, those study abroad trips, right. They always, you know, grab you and you're always like, like, what are the possibilities and the opportunities? Right. Yep. Um, so definitely. Yeah. I would also recommend checking those out too. For yeah. Sure. That's awesome. <laughs> so you finish your PhD in Germany. Mm. How do you get into U of C? So after the PhD was finished, I spent two years at the University of Waterloo and uh, they had a new uh, cryptography research center. I did uh, two years of a postdoc, postdoctoral studies there, which oh, is crazy. a typical path for a recent PhD grad. You usually do a couple of years of postdoc. It lets you, you know, you go to another new place and you meet new people, work on new things. And, and this was great. There were a big group of postdocs, lots of students, great professors there to work with and learn from. And, and at the end of that time, I, I ended up, actually I went back to the University of Manitoba for two years. As a, that was my first job as a professor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah after that, then I came here. And uh, the, how I ended up here was uh, at the time there was an organization called i which was okay. in the business of, uh, of funding, uh, you know, endowed research chairs in the Alberta universities as a way of trying to diversify the economy a bit. They were specifically focused on tech. Yeah. And, and so my former master supervisor and undergrad supervisor, Hugh Williams, uh, got, I think it might have been the second i chair in the province. And he came to Calgary in 2001 as to establish a research chair in cryptography and computational mathematics. And as part of those chairs, uh, they came with two or three junior positions, and uh, he convinced me to come and take up one of those. And I've been here ever since. Oh, Very cool. crazy, yeah. crazy. So my research, what I'm basically doing is I'm trying to um, find ways that it can use computers to solve hard math problems more efficiently, okay. more quickly, with uh, less resources. The connection to security is that uh, one, one approach to try to build a secure system is that you design it in such a way that the problem of breaking the crypto system forces you to solve some hard math problem and so there's the connection so i'm by studying the hard math problems we are saying something about the security of uh, certain crypto systems that use them and the other angle of it is that a lot of these uh, crypto systems make use of uh, certain computations to actually do the encryption and decryption. Mm -hmm. And another part of my research is trying to make those computations as fast as we can as well. So the effect being that, that you know, the cryptographic application is just speeding the process of encryption and decryption. So you don't have to wait as long. What, what, what kind of time frames are we, are we looking at here? Like you were saying, like, you know, as faster, or slower, like how long, like what's the fastest you've ever broken? In encryption, yeah. Yeah, it, so most of what I do is it doesn't quite work quite like that. So we're okay. we're usually not really breaking things. It's more about uh, you know trying to solve the problem for as big uh, instances of the problem as you can 
And then you can say, well, I can solve them up to this size. And so if I want my crypto system to be secure, I'm going to take them like that size. Oh, I see. So we're generating a data like that to sort of inform the choices of how to instantiate their crypto systems so that they're secure based on the best of our abilities to break them at this point. How would you sort of like visualize like, like what a crypto system is? Well, sure. I mean, there's uh, yeah, lots of nice sort of uh, examples to think about. A simple example, um, you may have seen, you know, in newspapers or somewhere, you know, cryptograms, mm-hmm. which are, it's just basically a puzzle. You know, it's uh, basically some uh, well-known quote. And what's done is that uh, according to some fixed scheme, they take uh, every letter of English and they replace it with a different one. Yeah. So like maybe A gets replaced with S, you know, B gets replaced with Z, C gets replaced with D, and every letter is done that way. And the puzzle is you look at the transformed one and you try to get the original quote back. Well, that's a very simple example of a crypto system because, you know, you're, you have your original um, message. It's transformed in a way that at least when you just look at it, you can't see immediately what the original message was. Mm-hmm. The key that's involved is uh, certainly if you know what each letter is substituted for, you can easily undo it and get the uh, original message back. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's roughly how it works. Now, as it turns out, of course, that example is, is a very simple one and insecure because, you know, well, it's puzzles and you can break it even if you don't know what, you can figure out what the transformation was. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, you know, that sort of basic principle of just taking the original data and transforming it into a, an intelligible form is essentially what all crypto systems do, even the modern ones. And so in terms of like going deeper with security, we want things to be more secure. You know, you gave us a very, very uh, simple example. What are examples, if any, that you can give that give more security uh, in addition to your basic kind of example here? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can go from there, from that simple idea. Um, Mm -hmm. There's... One really intriguing and interesting way is that uh, you can actually take that that basic idea of a, it's called a substitution cipher. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of spin that up into something that is absolutely theoretically unbreakable. And the way you do it is that, uh, so the basic method that I described was uh, every A gets changed to the same letter, like every B gets changed to the same letter. Mm-hmm. But what if you instead, um, you decide sort of randomly, each character in your message, you decide to substitute with some random character, and you do that independently for each different character in the message. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, the sender and receiver know what that random sequence of encipherments is, they can still read each other's um, messages. Yeah. If you do that, if you do random encipherments, Right, for every character independently, and you make sure that you don't use the same sequence of encipherments more than once, then you have something called the one-time pad, which is uh, provably perfectly secure, theoretically unbreakable. Hmm. That doesn't work well in practice, though, because being able to do that sort of independent random choice of encipherment for every single character and communicate that to the recipient is just practically, it, it doesn't work very well. It's really hard to do that. Hmm. So we usually rely on things that are possibly breakable. We can't prove that they're theoretically unbreakable, but they just mm-hmm. work well in practice and no one knows how. Mm, right. And so for that, you, there's two ways to go with that. You either, um, you, you sort of take that simple substitution idea, mix it with the idea of rearranging things. In short, I mean, you can combine those two things in really clever, sophisticated ways to make things that nobody knows how to break. The other way to do it is you uh, try to involve uh, hard math problems that... Uh, 
you know, we think are really hard to solve in practice, but we can't prove it, but uh, they seem to be secure. So, so, it's, so it's, it's not about finding impossible. You're just finding so difficult that people just don't do it. Yeah. yeah so impossible often means impractical. Not always, right. but uh, mm-hmm. so we usually try to go to basically what you said. We try to have systems that, to the best of anybody's knowledge, we don't know an efficient way to break it, and we rely on that. Is efficiency and impracticality based on a hardware limitation or a computational limitation? Yeah, in terms of uh, breaking uh, how we deem things to be secure, that's that's what it is. It's about resources required, usually time and time and or memory. Memory. It's usually a linked in practice, but uh, that's that's what it is. So, ah, is given an adversary and how much computing power we estimate they can throw at the problem, um, they shouldn't be able to to break the scheme. And so, is there some kind of like standard in terms of like computational ability? In- there are, there are. So, um, there's a few different standards. A few different countries have their own. Uh, one of the most well-known and most often followed is from uh, the NIST organization in the U.S. It's the National Institute of Standards. And I'm doing bad at remembering acronyms today. I think those three are correct. <laughs> standards yeah. Technologies, maybe. Um, but they've had for a while uh, recommendations for uh, basically key lengths. Um, often it's, it's the size of the key that essentially that determines uh, the amount of work to break a crypto system often. Mm. And They have uh, three levels of security that are designed for U.S. uh, federal government uh, regulations. So, you know, sort of low, mid and high. And they tell you, you well, if you need highest security, you should be using keys of this size. So so they've done all the background work, the estimations of how much time it would take to break a cipher at that level and what key sizes you need to attain it. Mm. And I'd imagine it'd it'd take a lot of time if that's uh, very valuable government information. Yeah, if I remember right, I think uh, high-level security is, uh, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's something like uh, they can't get, they estimate it can't be broken within the next 50 years. That's crazy. It could be more <laughs> high, I forget this, but yeah. 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 And just trying to stay on the same topic here, we noticed on your website you have this thing called PGP Public Key. Okay, I searched up PGP and it said pretty good privacy. Um, is like... Does this relate to our conversation about about the whole security kind of thing? Because I noticed that there's a fingerprint and there's all these digits and numbers. Does that tie into the same yes. kind of conversation? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So PGP is a, is an application for uh, encrypting email. Okay. It's okay. been around for quite a while. It's, uh, it's some neat features. It's a, it's an open source uh, you know sort of thing that was developed and you know royalty free at least at the outset. I think there's a corporation that runs aspects of it now, but uh, and yeah, it's secure email. So what you're seeing on my website is uh, basically a link to uh, you know my key. If you wanted to use PGP and send me an encrypted email, you would download my key and, and use that to, to encrypt it. That's wow, awesome. very cool. So like almost even just like reaching out to you, you can actually like experience sort of the, the work that, you're, that you've worked on and yeah. uh, what you're passionate about, I guess. That's really cool. That's mm-hmm. super cool. You know, we talked about all various different kinds of things, but is there any kind of like major concepts that we're missing here in terms of like, you know, explaining what crypto systems are and, you know, your, your research, computational number theory? Yeah, that's, I think that's the, the main aspect of it, I guess. And from my end, I should say what it, what it really drives me is just the, the mathematical challenges. Uh, for me, that's, it's just fun. I mean, we're trying to solve hard problems, use, we're using a computer to do it, trying to 
develop, you know, better algorithms and methods to, to use it. But it's, but for me, I mean, and you know, I also do, you know, we're looking at uh, unproven conjectures, trying to find, you know, use a computer to generate evidence in support of them or show that they're false. There's problems like that, I think, are just simply fun. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge to work on them. Um, then the applications to, uh, to cryptography are, are nice as well. You know, this is a good motivation to do things as well. It can sometimes yeah. focus our attention on things of broader interest, which is great. Um, and I guess the, you know, sort of more, just to put it in context, I guess, uh, the it's all very important. It's good the, that uh, the cryptography needs to, to be there. It's sort of a fundamental sort of a tool, you know, that's required to do uh, information security. Certainly not all of the story either. That might be a good segue into the master's uh, program at some point. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. We know that you're working on this whole new program and we've we've kind of heard little tidbits of information about it here and there. What What is up with, with this whole program? Yeah, so this is a... Uh, very fairly recently approved. Uh, it's a professional master's program in information security and privacy. Is mm-hmm. what it is. Um, this is actually the it's the culmination of uh, of a lot of years of work and efforts. By I mean, my predecessor, the previous director, Philip Fong, had done a, a huge amount of work in preparing all the documents for submission to the various governing bodies to get these things approved. And this is sort of the the final kind of end result of all of that labor that's gone on before. Um, it uh, actually builds upon what we had previously had were some certificate programs in these areas. So we had a certificate in network security, which is consists of basically, a, it's a four course program. You do the four courses, you get this a certificate credential. Right. We recently had another one approved in data privacy. So it's sort of a nice combination, the security and privacy side, so we can now teach people. And the master's basically, a, it's a stackable certificate program, which means that uh, you could take one certificate at some point, then follow it up with the other one and combine them. Mm. Do a capstone project or internship and you get the master's degree. Ah, I see, I see. Can you go into like those those smaller kind of certificates and what, what they're all about? Yeah, so the... Uh, um, the network security certificate uh, consists of uh, four courses that you have to take. Yeah. They are courses on, um, there, there's an ethical hacking lab, which is a fairly uh, hands-on uh, applied sort of a thing where you're in the lab learning how to use uh, ethical hacking tools to try to learn how to penetrate and defend systems. Interesting. Um, yeah. We yeah. have uh, a course on applied cryptography. That's the one I teach, which... So I was sort of trying to insinuate is uh, it's a, a sort of a core technology in the area. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's certainly, it's not something that, you know, solves all the problems. The inf- information security and privacy are much bigger than just cryptography, but still you have to know how to do it, do it right. So, so we teach that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a course on network security that mm-hmm. uh, people would take. So it's focused on uh, computer network technologies for uh, defense and attack and how to use those in the best way. Mm-hmm. And then you take uh, either uh, one of our courses on policies, governance, or risk management or standards. And because in practice, a lot of what you do is dictated by uh, regulations and, uh, and best practices and mm-hmm. governance models. So it's important that you that practitioners understand that side of things besides just the technology. Of course. The data privacy certificate as well as, uh, is four courses. 
So this consists of, again, one or both of those uh, policies and governance courses. They do a course on private data management, which is, you know, about, you know, how you can uh, protect contents of your database from uh, hackers or inadvertent leaks. Mm. Um, we have a topics course in data privacy, which I think is going to be an ex a follow-up to applied cryptography, talking about, um, you know, special purpose cryptographic techniques to help, you know, the special focus on securing data. And then there's also a, a hands-on lab course uh, that students will take on um, privacy by design, where again, you're in the lab, you're looking at and working with uh, tools, you know, designed to uh, help you uh, safeguard uh, data specifically. That's awesome. That's awesome. And who is the perfect kind of person? If I'm thinking, am I suited for this program? What kind of person would be best suited for this program? So we have uh, three particular cohorts in mind, actually. The, okay. the, okay. First, the first is, uh, is uh, mid-career professionals who are looking for a, for a change, want to pivot career. For you know, I think we can all imagine various reasons you know, why uh, one <laughs> might want to do that these days. But uh, yeah. um, information security, I should say, is a hugely a growing field. And there's uh, various estimates that I think growth is... Uh, in that sector is uh, three times quicker than uh, the rest of the IT combined. So it's oh, wow. a lot of openings, lots of job openings. And, and when you see breaches like uh, what happened with CRA a week or two ago, all the ransomware things that are happening, I think the need is apparent. And industry and government are crying out you know, for you know, qualified people to work in these areas. So, so it's a great pivot. And if you, you know, wanted to switch gears and learn about uh, something new, and there's definitely good jobs out there for you. Mm -hmm. um, the second cohort is, uh, is recent graduates. So undergrads who just completed their studies and, and are looking for a, you know, an extra credential on top of their bachelor's degree. Maybe they're not interested in going to traditional grad school to do research. They're looking for something more professionally oriented. So right. um, that's a great, uh, great cohort. And then the third one, we eventually hope to start targeting to international students, you know, in same situations. But mm. uh, we're focusing on Calgary and Canada to start, but uh, eventually we hope to grow it. The, um, the student for any of these cohorts, uh, basically, uh, we're looking for somebody with some a little bit of tech, tech know-how already. So you should be able to program a little bit, because we have these hands-on lab courses. It's kind of hard if you, you know, don't already know your way around a computer a little. Yeah, um, algorithms and data structures is technology is something that's sort of needed for people, and uh, either knowledge of operating systems, so you know how computers themselves work internally, or computer networks, just the basics of you know how computer communications happen. If you're going to study network security, hard to secure them if you don't know at least a little bit about what the actual network's doing. So that's true. Yeah. So, and these could be uh, either through courses. So like a computer science student will have all of that. Someone with a bachelor's, uh, easy can get in. Computer engineers, related disciplines. So information technology, uh, information management, it's all good. Um, relevant work experience will take too. Even if you don't have a computer science degree, if you work with some of this stuff and yeah. can demonstrate some competency, that's, that's fine too. I just curious, is there like a, a way for students to maybe like, let's say like as an accounting major, um, is there a pl place where I could go to kind of get like almost like a little mini crash course to like speed myself up on this? Are there any resources that you would recommend or how would you go about that? 
Well, yeah, so I think we're in the long term, we're going to be working on, you know, some sort of really concrete and targeted things. Like if you want to take this, here's some things we recommend, possibly delivering some things ourselves it's up in the air. We might do that. In the meantime, I think, uh, you know, we would point people to, uh, you know, just online crash courses or continuing education uh, program at the University of Calgary uh, should be able to get you up to speed for, with what you need. Right. That, that's great. Uh, I'm just curious actually here. So the, you know, this, this program, when does this program uh, specifically start? Oh, so we're going to launch in uh, September, 2021. So a year from now. Right? And the reason for that is uh, we really want this program to be uh, a um, in-person sort of in-class uh, hands-on experience. I mean, mm. we, you know, we were considering, you know, trying to do some online delivery, but uh, we'd rather avoid that if possible. As we think, you know, one of the things that we hope will set us apart is the relationships we can build with the students by having them here, um, working with them in person, meeting them, finding out what's what they're passionate about, and getting them in the labs, you know, with all that hands-on experience. So, so we're hoping the current COVID situation has died down by next September that uh, <laughs> we'll be able to do that. And, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it'll be next September, and and that'll be again the, the launch of the the master's program. So, um, the master's program you could do either as the stackable certificate model, or you could do the whole thing and finish it with one year. And we'll be offering everything you need to do that. So, four courses uh, in September through December, one per month. Four courses January through April, one per month. Followed by, I think I didn't say this before, but one of the most exciting aspects of this is that to get the master's, you do the courses and you finish with either a capstone project or a, an internship. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. And I mentioned before my uh, affinity for co-op programs and how that grew <laughs> me in the end of my career choice. I mean, we want to offer something similar. I mean, the, the focus of our program and the eventual outcomes we hope are employability for our students so mm-hmm. we're hoping to help them get a leg up with that as much as we can yeah yeah that's that's true i think you know you mentioned a lot of good things there the employability is is huge and just like overall getting a better feel a understanding of all of the concepts that are um really you know starting to grow in in this this world and it's very much needed a lot more uh, security kind of focus as you know, tech becomes just more important uh, it, within our general daily lives. And and even for people maybe who I, I'm thinking like, you know, there's there should be still people who maybe not even looking for employability, but just want to have that extra understanding of, you know, why is security important? Um, I think that would be a really, really interesting kind of added value for, for taking this program. Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned the, the, the COVID kind of impact here, you know, I think that's, it's an interesting kind of uh, situation to obstacle, obstacle. Yeah. How have you like found it in terms of launching this program? Um, I know you guys are starting next year, but you know, all of the planning and stuff has, has been taking place over the past couple months here. Um, has that been a big challenge or? Um, it would have been if we were going to launch this September, I think. Yeah. But you'd yeah. be, you know, really up against the wall and having to, you know, sort of pivot, pivot a lot. But uh, 
by strategically deciding, you know, to, uh, to put it off uh, for a year, you know, we can, well, one of two things will happen. Either things are starting to get better and we can proceed as originally planned, or if things are still, you know, sort of lingering around, we're going to have enough time to, you know, do things online in the best way we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense. Just have yeah. a little, be a little bit more prepared for it, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Were you teaching last uh, winter when I this, was, yeah. Yeah, all of this stuff started? Yeah. How did you find all of that? Like, just was it a big struggle, do you think? For, for me personally, it, it wasn't too bad. Okay. I, mean, I was somewhat fortunate. I have a fairly decent uh, setup in my home, you know, like a little home office. And I got a dual monitor configuration and the yeah. webcam was already here and everything. Yeah. So, and we, we had already had some familiarity using Zoom. We had been running a couple of uh, online seminar series that I've been participating in, and we organized one, like a research seminar. So, awesome. you know, so delivering content uh, remotely wasn't totally foreign to me. You know, having to do it, you know, with, uh, you know, two lectures per course every week, I was teaching Tuesdays and Thursdays, was oh. a bit grueling by the end. But, yeah. Uh, Yikes. Yeah. But, it, yeah, I mean, it. I, I also have been teaching from uh, from slides primarily, and I, my style is I like to do that and then work examples sort of uh, on the board. Mm-hmm. That was the only awkward part. So, you know, with Zoom, I was using the whiteboard feature to sort of do my work examples, but uh, it was decent enough that we were able to, to get through the course. And I just tried to keep things as close as I could to the what we were doing in class as much as possible so that the students weren't having to experience, you know, anything crazy or, you know, a lot of shifts. So I just switched to Zoom, you know, gave the lectures over there, used the little whiteboard feature to work out examples and tried to, you know, keep steering the ship, stay in the course and keep everybody calm. And it seems to have worked out okay. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it has been a big struggle, but I'm glad you've been keeping on top of it. And, uh, you know, hopefully definitely makes you more prepared moving forward if, if you have to kind of continue doing that. Well, there are some positive aspects too. I mean, one thing, you know, that, you know, we learned quickly is that uh, there's Zoom recording feature. So I started immediately recording all the lectures and, and this is a really nice outcome. I think a lot of students uh, really found that incredibly helpful. You know, if you have to miss a lecture for whatever reason, or you didn't follow what I was saying, then they have an opportunity to go back, play it again. And, and now going forward, whether I'm in the lecture room or in my home office here delivering the content, I'll probably still try to record things for that reason. So there's, yeah. there's some yeah. nice learnings from it too. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. And hopefully by, you know, next September, we are COVID free or at least COVID controlled. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> fingers crossed. But uh, yeah, I, I, I really hope that you guys can, because it sounds like, you know, the, the hands-on lab experience, right? Like, and, you know, just getting into the labs and doing like more of like a practical, you know, application kind of thing would be, mm-hmm. would be so beneficial, especially for people that are in that first cohort of like pivoting, uh, you know, from their careers. So hopefully by then we're, we're, we're doing better. We're doing good. And yeah. uh, we can, we can experience this because it sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. And it's a, what you say is important too. I mean, it's really a great career actually. Like one of the things I love about like information security in general is that it's sort of a good and a bad side to it. The, the bad take is that it's a problem that you, you can't solve it, right? Mm. This isn't something like, like polio where you, you, know, you invent a vaccine and you eradicate essentially the yeah. disease, right? 
It's more like an arms race, you know, where there's uh, attackers and defenders and the attackers develop something new and the defenders have to scramble to catch up and patch the holes. Or the defenders make some advances and the attackers are always looking, oh, you know, how can I get around that? So so it, it, it never ends. There's, it's a nice, stable career. I mean, you're always going to be needed, which is it's sort of sad, but in one sense. But, uh, you know, in terms of finding a good career to be in that's got legs and you know, it's really good for that. And, and just the dynamic nature, it never gets stale. There's always something new happening, keeps you on your toes and engaged. And it's just, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I totally agree. hundred percent. That is, uh, and it would be cool, I think. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we've talked about a lot of great things today. Um, you know, we had a lot of great conversation. Um, is there anything else that you kind of want to add on to our discussion that wasn't mentioned earlier? I mean, with respect to the program, um, I'd just like to also uh, point out uh, where people can go for more information. Yeah, right. So we have an email address for that. It's prograd.science at ucalgary.ca. And our website is uh, science.ucalgary.ca slash information dash security. So all our current information is up on there. Um, The email address, uh, anyone who's interested in this should feel free to email us. And we can set up a Zoom meeting to answer questions and talk with anyone who's interested in the programs. That's awesome. And well, we can add that stuff into the into the notes of the show. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. On the the research math side, I don't know. Maybe I should like sort of throw out a shout to. Um, we're having a sort of a conference event in the, starting October first uh, in memory of uh, my former colleague uh, Professor Richard Guy who is a very well-known mathematician, University of Calgary, number theorist. He died uh, earlier this year, just before COVID hit. He missed all the fun. Oh, no. <laughs> but uh, he wow. died at the age of uh, 103. And he had been, wow. even up to just before he was admitted to hospital, he was a really active member in the mathematics department at the University of Calgary. I was collaborating with him actively, with uh, myself and a student. Mm. And we're having a... Uh, I, we're having a um, series of little workshops, uh, online workshops, uh, discussing his life and his work. So part of his, he, he's done a lot of things, but part of it is he was really into computational mathematics and number theory problems too, just from the pure mathematics sake. So mm-hmm. anyone interested in that side of things, I would encourage to, to look that up and uh, see what we're, what's going on with that. We're, I'm involved in organizing the number theory part of this, myself and Professor Renata Scheidler, and we're going to be lining up some pretty awesome speakers to speak about his legacy in this field. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah, that's super fun. He sounds like... Uh, yeah, it will be fun. <laughs> yeah, great. So uh, I guess to wrap up our conversation, we talked about a lot of great things. If you could sum up, though, what we talked about today, what are the kind of key takeaway pieces that you want listeners to yeah, take away? So for the um, for the master's program, I think I would just ask listeners to you know just just watch out for uh, for further information coming out about that. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, we expect to have a registration open by November at the latest. Um, cool. Um, do contact us if you want more information. Again, it's uh, I think it's a really exciting field you know to get involved in. You know, there's lots of great opportunities. Uh, I didn't mention, I think there's statistics that the average starting salaries are higher in this than uh, some other areas, probably because people are having so much trouble filling the jobs. But it's just really fun work, uh, great challenges, and, and super important, you know, to, to society, you know, to, you know, get people aware about these issues and working in them. So, so be on the lookout for that. Um, 
program's exciting. I mean, we, you know, we're doing it in-house, you know, we're in person, you know, trying to have relatively small student cohorts so we can get to know people, they can get to know us. Um, Hands-on, you know, sort of a instruction, you know, learn a lot. You're going to get taught by, you know, world experts, you know, in, in the area. People, I think you mentioned Joel Reardon. He's one of the instructors. He's in there. Ray Safavi Naini is a world-class cryptographer, network security specialist, TELUS chair, working with lots of industries. So we had really great people working on it. Wow. And, um, and don't forget the fact that uh, we, we're still spinning up the internship component of this, but this is going to be a really exciting aspect of the program. You'll, you know, have uh, eight months in the classroom learning the ropes, learning the basic techniques and the foundations, and then you get to go put it into practice, you know, for a minimum of five weeks, get paid, and probably get a job at the end of it. So we're really excited about it. Wow. I got to start my coding knowledge now then. <laughs> Great. Any other, any other takeaways? Yeah. Um, there was something I wanted to say about it, I guess. Mm, sort of drawing a blank. For, for, yeah. for the students that are kind of intimidated by complex math problems and stuff, like how which, cause you, you have clearly demonstrated that for you, that's like, it's fun, right? It's interesting. And that, oh. that's a very, that's a very, I think an important thing to kind of realize is, you know, as a student, you kind of come across these crazy challenges. Um, do you have any advice for students regarding like, you know, how to tackle math problems that seem impossible to to answer <laughs> oh yeah that's that's a great question and you know I'm, I'm a father of four i see this at home a lot and you know how do you sort of instill this sort of a resiliency in the people to to not give up you know with the problem and it's uh, yeah, it's it's difficult i mean i try to convey the attitude that uh, you know the challenge is part of where the fun is right Mm -hmm. And I mean, the more challenging the problem is, the harder you got to work. I mean, the more satisfaction you get when you finally beat it, right? Mm. And that's what's kind of driven, kind of drives me, I guess, with these things. I just, you know, view them as challenges and sort of puzzles and, you know, just, yeah, enjoy the, enjoy the challenge. I mean, the, the problems, the problem is not worth much if it doesn't kind of fight, fight you back a little bit, right? And when you struggle with it, you're, you're learning, you're trying to approach it in different ways. And it's, yeah, just enjoy the challenge and embrace it and, and just savor the victory when you finally beat it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I love it. The resiliency piece is definitely huge. Yeah. Yeah, I guess what I wanted to say about number theory is it's, it's a great vehicle for that. I mean, there's, there's so many just fun numerical sort of problems and puzzles. And, and they range in difficulty from things you can cut your teeth on and you know, sort of get used to get into the area with some guidance to things that are problems that are just really simple to state, but uh, nobody knows how to prove them and things. And it's just this. It's one of the fascinating things about it that, that catches a lot of people's attention is, there, is the nature of the problems. Like, you know, one uh, familiar one or famous one is something called the twin prime conjecture that says that there should be infinitely many prime numbers whose difference is two, you know, that just differ by two, like five and seven are twin primes, mm -hmm. um, 11 and 13. And there should be infinitely many pairs like that. And, and that problem is really so simple to state, but nobody can prove it. Oh, interesting. Because yeah, of just the sheer, like, amount of numbers there are. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, people can, you know, what people have done is generated numerical evidence. And this is kind of like 
some of the stuff that I do, and they, they try to just find as many twin primes as possible up to however far they can get the computer to search. And by trying to devise clever methods to improve the search and make it faster. And, and so you can do that, and, but that still never proves anything. It just says, well, you know, we've looked this far, we're always finding new primes. However far we look, we keep finding, we keep finding them. It's probably true. But that doesn't prove it, right? It yeah. just makes you more confident that it's probably true. So, well, I'll start. I'll start counting. I'll get my whiteboard out. We'll get this going. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I think we we covered a lot today. Um, last piece of if people want to learn more about you or what we talked about today, um, where can they find you? Um, and their and your work. Um, I know you you plugged the program a little bit already. Um, maybe uh, any other kind of major links that you, you want to direct people at. Yeah, I, I guess just my website is the main one. I think so. Which I think it sounds like you guys already found that. And yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. need to update the list of publications on there, but I think everything else is reasonably current. Uh, gives a brief Sorry. overview of what I'm interested in, and then the publications drill down a bit deeper, see more concrete examples of the stuff I work on. It's probably the best place. That's awesome. Yeah. And we'll, we'll throw the link down in the description of the podcast there. So once I find that, they can go check that out and yeah. uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for being on the show. We really uh, enjoyed learning about the the new program. Hope you, hopefully people check that out. Um, And your research is also super interesting. Um, So yeah. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you guys for doing this and having me on. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into What the Tech, a podcast powered by the Computer Science Department of UCalgary. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow us on Instagram at UFC underscore CPSC for more computer science content. If you have any questions or want to suggest future episode topics, you can also visit anchor.fm slash whatthetech-ucalgary. There, you can leave us a voice message with your questions for a chance to get featured in future episodes. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week for another episode of What the Tech.